Greetings from Cyberdelic Space. This is Lorenzo, and I'm your host here in the Psychedelic Salon. And in the interest of helping you find a few more of the others, well, this coming Memorial Day weekend, you may want to stroll through Forgotten City, because my hunch is that you will most definitely find some of the others there. And what is the Forgotten City, you ask? Well, it's the Las Vegas Burning Man regional event, and at 2.30 on Sunday, May 24th, at Center Camp, will be my friend, Rock X1 who's going to be hosting a conversation in salon format that's titled Entheobotany and Shamanism. So whether you're a burner, a fellow saloner, or both, uh, well, my recommendation is that you stop by and make a few new connections. Uh, Who knows where they're going to lead? And one more announcement before I introduce today's talk, which, by the way, is a continuation of the week-long workshop we've been listening to, the one that was conducted by Terence McKenna in June of 1994. And this is something that I probably should have mentioned a long time ago, but, well, it keeps slipping my mind. In a few moments, we're going to be hearing Terence speak about some books that he recommends for your library. And, like I've always done in the past, I place links to those books in the featured book sections of my Amazon bookstore. Actually, I do this every time a book is mentioned here in the salon. Uh, Well, almost every time. But if you're interested in any of the books that are talked about here, you can uh, always go to my bookstore page, and you'll most likely find them featured there for you. Now, uh, getting on with today's program, we're going to hear one of the main features of a Terrence McKenna workshop, information about psychedelic substances that wasn't readily available anywhere else at the time. This talk is actually a really good example of how the information about psychedelics made its way around the country during the uh, 80s and 90s. Terence would uh, travel to various places that he called New Age watering holes and answer questions, just like the ones we're about to hear. Then the uh, people from those workshops would pass their cassette tapes of these events around to their friends, who would then, of course, copy them and do the same. In a way, it was uh, like a low-key version of what the Grateful Dead fans were doing at the same time. In fact, many Dead fans were also fans of Terence. And while I'd like to uh, riff on that a bit more, this is uh, already kind of a long talk, so I'm going to get out of here and turn you over to Terence McKenna and a few friends on a summer day in 1994. And by the way, in about an hour and four minutes from now, we're going to hear the most detailed description yet of what Terence thought would happen on December 21st, 2012. Now you may have heard this before, but... For me, it's the most direct and fully detailed account of uh, what he thought would happen on that day that I've ever heard him give. Okay. Um, Well, we were going this morning, and we just were somewhat interrupted by um, noon, uh, uh, or whatever it was. And this morning we talked about DMT phenomenologically and to some degree pharmacologically. Uh, it, it was good to run through all that because talking about one in detail and one that combines in its phenomenology so much of the others uh, is, a, is sort of a general introduction to the phenomenology of the psychedelic experience. 
But then at the end of the morning, we were saying, uh, you know, each one of these compounds is different, each one of us is different, and part of getting into this area of spiritual self-exploration or whatever is to is to learn what works for you i mean a, a substance as simple as cannabis makes some people so something that they're very uncomfortable in social situations they say it makes them paranoid other people uh, myself included it quenches paranoia so uh, there's one substance doing two things, and that's a fairly simple case. Um, so you have to learn your way into it, and there's a rich lore about these things. We haven't really spent a lot of time on it, but you you should look at the literature of psychedelic substances, shamanism, chemistry, so forth and so on. Certainly, you should buy, read, and treasure every one of my books. Uh, having <laughs> Once you've done that, um, you know, I notice up in the um, bookstore, Jonathan Ott's book, Pharmacotheon. It, this is not a book to curl up around the fire with, but it is a compendious uh uh, reference work and he proudly states and truly I believe that his bibliography is 30% longer than any bibliography on the subject ever published in English and and the man is an absolutely obsessive fact checker and footnote maker and scholar and holds everyone in the community to his level of uh, of uh, scholarship and expertise. So uh, if you need the equivalent of a physician's desktop reference on psychedelics, psychedelic plants, chemistry, usage, personalities, so forth and so on, uh, Pharmacotheon is a good one. Um, Richard Evan Schultes of Harvard in in, uh, collaboration with Albert Hoffman who discovered LSD Together, they wrote a number of books, the most scientific and the best of which is uh, The Botany and Chemistry of Hallucinogens, which discusses every known hallucinogen on this planet, uh, some in great detail, some in not so much detail, but again, extensive bibliographical citations in English and German in this case, leading you wherever you need to go. If you're interested in mushrooms, you're going to have to come to terms with Gordon Wasson, who was the great discoverer uh, of the psilocybin mushroom complex and purveyor of the theory that Amanita muscaria was soma, so forth and so on. Um, If you're interested in the more trippy aspects of it all, I suppose. Certainly, uh, you should read The White Goddess by by Robert Graves, which is a very complex and challenging book. In fact, once you've read it, you can explain to me what it's about. Uh, I can't quite wrap my mind around it. Um, 
the the history of the discovery of the mushrooms is very interesting and if you like you know anecdotes about great men and the rivalries and so forth that pass between them there's certainly enough of that in the history of psychedelics uh, just as an example um the reason Gordon Wasson and his wife Valentina went to Mexico was because Robert Graves told them that they should do that, that there was something in Mexico having to do with mushrooms that they would find very interesting. Many people know this part of the story, but very few people know that the person who told Robert Graves was, uh, of all people, Idris Shaw. And why Idris Shaw knew this is not clear. But at Wasson's death, all of his papers went to the Harvard Museum Botanical Library, where a friend of mine happens to be the curator. And he recently sent me Xeroxes of a correspondence between Idris Shaw and Gordon Wasson and the subject of the correspondence was Idris Shah saying to Wasson, please don't publish the information that you obtained from my brother about the use of mushrooms in Sufi circles in Delhi. And this is interesting because nobody has ever said Sufis used mushrooms. It's not a charge they need defend themselves against. And yet, uh, if you are interested in this, take a look at Idris Shah's book, The Sufis. And in the chapter on uh, Ibn Attar, who was a great Arabic alchemist of the 10th century, out of nowhere there comes this passionate denial of Sufi involvement with hallucinogenic mushrooms, just out of the blue. But what's weird about it is the chapter before that, he talks about Sufi logic and explains to you that Sufis always deny the truth of what they're doing. And then in the next chapter, this passionate denial of mushrooms makes you wonder um, so uh, that that's part of the the literature of mushrooms and every uh, every drug has a similar fascinating history you all know the story as Thomas Pynchon says in Gravity's Rainbow every school child knows the story of that bicycle ride through the streets of Basel that Albert Hoffman took that afternoon when he left work a little early with a case of the blahs and, uh, and in the course of the afternoon realized that he had discovered a mega hallucinogen. One thing that's not said about that story, but which was very apparent when we celebrated the 50th anniversary of the event, was that 600 miles away in Warsaw, at that very moment, the Jews of Warsaw were rising in revolt against uh, the occupation of the Third Reich. The Warsaw Ghetto Uprising and the discovery of LSD happened on the same weekend. Strange, 
food for the novelty way. Um, and I can talk about the literature of other drugs if somebody has a particular interest in it. It's something I have an interest in just because I'm a bookish kind of guy. What about the poisonous frogs that were in the paper recently? <laughs> <laughs> By the paper, do you mean the New York Times? Oh, oh. The people who were arrested for... Oh, for the toad licking. Oh, well, that's a whole complex of of vaguely related issues. I mean, here we can deal with this fairly briefly, I think. Uh, this morning I sang the praises of DMT. There is another tryptamine called 5-MeO-DMT or 5-Methoxy-DMT. And it uh, occurs in some plants... It occurs in some of the plants that DMT occurs in, and but it occurs in its purest and most available form in uh, these large glands on the on the necks of certain uh, New World toads, especially Bufo alvarius. And if any of you live around Santa Fe or throughout the Southwest, you know that in certain times of the year, these toads go on the rut, as it were. And, you know, no one is safe from their nocturnal gallivantings. And these are fairly impressive creatures. I mean, uh, a, a large specimen will hang its haunches off a dinner plate. Uh, so they're hefty. And the prefer preferred method of dealing with these toads by psychedelicos is you go to a dry arroyo at night where the toads are known to carry on with a, with a big flashlight. And when you shine your flashlight on them, they stay still. They're blinded. You then rush forward seize your amphibian and uh, by a process I've never actually inquired too deeply into, you massage, milk, squeeze, pinch, it depends on who's describing it, these glands and uh, and some people do it onto the windshield of their four-wheel drive vehicle which has been parked facing east so that the, ri the rays of the rising sun will dry this, uh, let's be frank, folks, slime. <laughs> this slime, which you have squeezed out onto the windshield, and then you can take your frosty scraper and uh, scrape this stuff off, weigh it into gram bags, and drive to Berkeley, <laughs> where it moves out at $80 a gram, I understand. Maybe more. The number of people who've been asking me for it recently indicates a certain anxiety in the market about its accessibility. And I take a position which irritates a number of people, which is I'm not very keen on it. I... Comparing it to DMT, I would say it's just like DMT, except that nothing very interesting happens. 
uh, in other words, you don't have visions. Uh, some people dispute this. You have kind of visions. You have after images. You have fleeting things at the edge of your vision. But you don't have a troop of elves kick down your front door and take you prisoner while they reveal the secrets of transformational linguistics. Nothing like that happens. What happens on 5-MEO is an enormous emotion, a huge, wordless emotion overtakes you. And if you're a DMT fan, you recognize this feeling as the feeling of tryptamine intoxication. But mental phenomena is almost completely absent with 5-MeO-DMT. Um, psychiatrists and psychotherapists like it. And I'm, I'm not sure why. Uh, it must be that it creates an enormous contentless kind of catharsis in people. I have talked to people who have said it was the most profound experience of their life. And usually I try to wait bef like a day or two before asking, well, have you ever tried DMT? Because I don't want to bring their burst to their bubble. But I think that it, it's very hard for me to imagine that someone who had smoked DMT would prefer 5-MeO. Um, Okay, so now that's a... Is that a terminal experience for the code? Uh, not if you're gentle. N not if you're gentle. However, interesting you ask the question, uh, if you take some of this 5-MeO uh, in its purest form and inject a sheep with it, it will drop dead on the spot which is a little, raises questions, as they like to say. I mean, I guess you find out whether you're a sheep or not if you take it. But I, I, I think that's weird, that a mammal, uh, debatably a higher mammal, it is so toxified by this stuff. And it's a problem with sheep because 5-MeO occurs in a number, member, a number of members of the graminae, the pasture grasses, and what is called staggers in sheep, which is a problem for ranchers, is nearly lethal 5-MeO intoxication. And apparently a, a sheep doesn't have to get much of this stuff to be dead. So that that's a little, uh, maybe a, a red flag on this stuff. There may be people in this room who passionately disagree with what I'm saying and who think that 5-MeO is a wonderful, wonderful thing. It could be. And with with a, a psychoanalyst known to us all who will remain nameless, but one of the greats who goes back 25 years, and he said that the, that the DMT is not helpful for solving people's problems, that in a sense it brings new data in that just confuses people. I mean, people are unhappy in their job and you introduce them to noetic elf hordes, 
no, this is not helping. They need something different in that circumstance. And he likes the contentlessness of it and says that this emotional catharsis is real and, uh, and, um, and therefore useful. Somebody here at Esalen told me a story recently uh, about turning on a, a, a guru, essentially, who will also remain nameless, turning on a guru to this stuff. And the guy told me, he said, I, I thought that we'd lost him. He said, it was the, the most terrifying thing I've ever been through. He said, immediately uh, lost consciousness and coherency and began to turn purple. This is not a good sign, turning purple. Began to turn purple. And through being heart massaged and thumped around and screamed at and physically pummeled, he came out of it and rose through it into some incredible ecstasy, some absolutely transformative thing which looked like a 20-minute orgasm or something, and then plunged back through it, back into this turning blue, shuddering, spasmodic thing. And, uh, and finally, they were able to through cold baths and heart massage, and they got through this physical crisis. But the guy is basically, you know, a haunted figure at this point. I mean, he, it's been weeks, and he still has uncontrollable anxiety attacks and complete breakdowns in social situations and so forth and so on. This, this, doesn't, this sounds to me like serious business. I mean, I assume gurus are at high risk for pathology, but this sounds a bit over the top. So I don't really strongly recommend 5-MeO, but other people would and do and do use it and use it therapeutically. Um, the other thing that's happening that uh, is that, okay, so we've just dealt with toads, now frogs. Frogs, as you probably know, are the source of a number of very exotic neurotoxins that Indians in South America use on their arrow points, paralytic neuroleptic poisons. And a whole industry is getting started uh, in biotech, uh, growing frog skins on petri dishes in exotic chemical mediums to force the frog skins not only to produce the exotic neurotoxins they produce in nature, but to produce all kinds of things that they wouldn't ordinarily produce. And this is a hot area in biotechnology right now. Amphibian uh, gr drugs grown out of, the, out of cultured amphibian skin. Uh, and the, these things are neurotoxins and consequently near relatives of hallucinogens. But no, the DMT toad or the DMT frog remains somewhat of an elusive creature. We've never actually found a frog that was DMT pure and clean, but very near chemical relatives of these things exist. What about this? 
ecstasy is a synthetic related to MDMA, which is another synthetic. Um, these things are cyclicized amphetamines and the, uh, used widely, uh, well, MDMA more, MDMA being ecstasy, used more widely than MDA in therapy uh, and for having a good time dancing and this sort of thing in bars. Uh, but they, uh, it seems most effective in, in use with psychotherapy. It also seems most effective the first few times you do it. It becomes more and more like amphetamine, in my experience. And finally, you just have to admit, you know, basically you're wiring yourself up with this stuff. It's hard to get the amphetamine out of these cyclicized amphetamines. You know, mescaline is an amphetamine, and uh, and it and much of its presentation is amphetamine-like. The jaw clenching, the tooth grinding, that goes on with MDA, MDMA, MMDMA. There's a whole family of these things that Shulgin and others elaborated, but they are like they are not psychedelics. They're they are psycholeptics, mood enhancers, euphorians, empathogens, all these words have been used. But they're not, they're not true psychedelics. And there is no analog to them in nature. Yeah. I had a question the, uh, on, on mushrooms. The, uh, I'm sure you're familiar with uh, Timothy Leary's work way back when and all that. And he, he used uh, hydrated mushrooms coming from Mexico, I believe. And you had say peyote, and is peyote the same thing like the psilocybins? No, no, they're completely different things. Um, yes, here, here's the distinction. Peyote is a cactus, uh, Lophophora williamsi, a small desert cactus that grows in the shadow of sagebrush and uh, is a beautiful pale blue-green, and it contains mescaline and up to 12 other psychoactive alkaloids closely related to mescaline, anhalamine, anhalloween, N-methylmescaline, there's a whole bunch of them. Uh, and it was used, it is used by a number of Indian tribes in Mexico. There is an argument about how long it's been used. Uh, I don't think it's been used very long. It, I think it may be post-conquest. When you go into the old, old graves of Tarahumara graves and, uh, and like that, you don't find any remnants of peyote. What you find are, what are the seeds of uh, Sephora secundifolia, which is the mescal bean. It contains strychnine but apparently was the basis of a, of a shamanic rite of some sort over a wide area. Uh, peyote, certainly from our point of view, would be immensely preferable, but yet there, the, the evidence for long use of peyote isn't really there. Uh, this leads me to think I should say a little about something else, which is the way we perceive, well, Culture dictates how we relate to experience. 
and this is why you can you know look at the plains indian hanging in the sun with the hooks under his pectoral muscles and see that you know this is a culturally validated undertaking and and uh, seems to work for those people but you don't get a lot of white people doing that and uh, in many parts of the world where there are uh, uh, poor flora for hallucinogens you get another phenomenon which is called um, uh, ordeal poisons and ordeal poisons are work like this you are taken into the bush you are given some plant to drink or eat you go into convulsions you think you're going to die you want to die you beg to die and you don't die you get better you're fine 12 hours 15 16 hours later you're fine and you're so damn glad to be alive that you are reborn it's as, it's almost as good as a psychedelic trip because the very fact that you lived through this experience astonishes you so profoundly that you see your woman, your children, your family, your tribe with new eyes and deep appreciation. But this, but uh, so there, and then there are a lot of drugs in the world that seem to fall somewhere in between the absolute gold-plated hallucinogenic experience and an ordeal poison. For example, uh, DMT in South America is used by this tribe called the Yanomamo. And they, what they do is they take a, the seeds of a certain tree, Anadonanthera peregrina. The seeds of this tree contain DMT and they roast the seeds and then they grind them to as fine a powder as they can get and then they load up a long tube with this powder and you put the tube in your nostril and your friend sits across from you and blows this stuff up your nostril well it's just it's like being hit in the face with a two by four i mean it's just blindingly painful you scream, you fall over backwards, you salivate, perhaps you vomit, and then you recompose yourself. And by this time, they filled it to do nostril number two. And then you go through the scream, the salivation, the whole thing all over again. And now your sinuses are completely packed with the equivalent of fine roasted sawdust and and you're just your eyes are watering your whole head feels like it's just going and in the middle of all this in this absolutely filthy village with meningitis infected dogs sitting around watching you you begin to drift off into a very very mild subthreshold DMT trip well, it's our old favorite, DMT, but administered in a form and under such circumstances that most white people's desire in the middle of this is say, boy, I hope this is over soon, you know, so I can clear my sinuses and get my act together. Um, 
and and you know perhaps we could even place ayahuasca in this category because uh, ayahuasca what goes with ayahuasca is a physical purging it's a purgative you most people vomit sometimes it clears you out from both ends there is cultural validation of vomiting in other words they ask you if you vomited they urge you to vomit and you have this great hallucinogenic experience beautiful visions absolutely top-notch well so that's a kind of a mix of of the ordeal and uh, the the thing people always ask the question is it possible to do it on the natch it being have this kind of visionary transcendent experience and i think the answer for me has always been maybe but what we want to do is to do it in the most comfortable way possible i don't think that's such a bourgeois value that we need to dump it out of the canoe what's the matter with being comfortable while you do these things and and not risking your life and not risking hideous infections as you do when you flagellate yourself scarify yourself uh handle hot coals and stuff like that i mean you risk terrific infections especially in the tropical rainforest the hallucinogens just work and so i think that you know in the present cultural phase we're in with all cultures communicating uh, with all others uh we just need to see that for many thousands of years people have been interested in altered states and some people have developed better technologies than others and uh, uh the best technologies are apparently the plant pharmaceutical approaches to be preferred over yoga breath control flagellation fasting uh, you know all all of these fairly fairly strenuous and difficult things they don't work as well as the hallucinogens and this is a big argument in anthropology because there are a lot of anthropologists who say that when a culture uses hallucinogens it's entered a decadent phase of shamanism this was mirsiliad's notion and i just put it down entirely to his upbringing he was an upper class cultured european with a fascination for indian spirituality of course he was going to look at naked aboriginal people intoxicating themselves with plants and see a more primitive stage of religion but in fact if you lay them side by side in terms of their effectiveness uh yoga which is i take to be the most advanced system claiming to compete with the in the psychedelic domain it 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 is it requires immense discipline years of dedication uh the right method because many yogic methods are bunk and so you have to have all that and then if you do it right for years you might get somewhere we'll contrast that to 40 seconds into a toke of dmt 
and you know it's happening for you so my i've never been interested in uh, in uh, the details of the method and a lot of people have criticized me for that i mean the mushroom people say you know he really doesn't care about mushrooms meaning that i don't try to grow every diddly squats psilocybin containing mushroom on this planet in my basement in an aquarium that's how you gain points in the world of mycology say i've cultivated uh, you know pleurotus strictopinus i've done this i've done that well yeah but how much time have you spent loaded that's the important question um so for me means was never what i was interested in the end was uh, it and so i find the 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 plant hallucinogens to be just what the doctor ordered yeah i have two questions um one is have you ever heard of something called nexus that's a root is it being sold in the plastic in the in the little fold-out package with the islamic pattern on it It, i don't know i've seen it in capsules it's in capsules yes i don't want to rain on your parade no, go ahead uh it's 2cb and it's just a bunch of it's all marketing and lies and hype and delusion it isn't it's 2cb which is an illegal and interesting drug related to psilocybin it's an analog of psilocybin but the people who want first they said it was cathinone from cot and then they changed the story and said that it was uh uh something else but Sa- sasha uh shogun took some and analyzed it and he said it was the purest 2cb he's ever seen outside of his own laboratory so that was just a you know points for entrepreneurial uh, uh intent Yeah, I know those people were giving that stuff away. It was an interesting strategy to take an illegal drug, package it in a certain way, say it's a legal substance and and uh, and distribute it. But it couldn't go on for very long. Do you have a lot of it? <laughs> no, I know some people who had it. Though. Well, tell them it's probably worth more as st- to cb than as the mysterious nexus uh, what was the other question the other question is are you familiar with flower essence at all you mean like bach flower yeah, essence like um i was wondering i mean they have flower essence that enhance supposedly you gain into more creative sense of yourself and in touch with more spirit or what not and i was wondering um if perhaps if you were taking some of the flower essence that it can enhance um a trip without taking as much a dose of the mushrooms or whatever it it probably could i mean i i'm um i mean certainly odors are very very and isn't that how you do it you smell uh, it? no actually you take them oh you physically take you it physically take them well i don't know about that i'd be more skeptical um there are two kinds of people at least in this world and for purposes of this discussion let's call them um the sensitives and the insensitives 
and I number myself among the insensitives, it takes a great deal of anything to move me off the the beam. And it's people like myself that I'm trying to reach. The sensitives, I mean, I have people after a discussion like this morning with the elf machines and all that, come up to me occasionally and say, well, uh, this is happening for me all the time. I, I don't, I've never taken a psychedelic, but uh, I, I uh, meditate and these things. And all I can say is, good luck. You know, what an amazing thing, if true. But what I say to myself is, I don't really believe you. I can't see how that could be. I, I can't. Why aren't you more creative in that case? If you can access this on the natch, why aren't you different from the rest of us? If I could access it on the natch, if I could just at will move into the DMT state, I would be. Uh, I don't know what I would be, but I would not be ordinary. I can <laughs> tell you that. So I don't know what to make of these, and I don't, I don't diss it. Like I don't say it's impossible. I just say it's a tremendous gift, and you should treasure it greatly. And I hope it's true. I hope it's not your way of evading psychedelics. You know, saying, "Well, I don't need that. That's happening for me all the time. I'm there all the time." Really? How extraordinary. Um, so basically, my answer to the second part of your question is I don't know anything about, um, about flower essences, really. Uh, there are many things that can augment psychedelics that are, are, are very real. For example, monoamine oxidase inhibitors. Uh, monoamine oxidase inhibitors are a chemical family of compounds um, that... Well, they do exactly what it says. They inhibit monoamine oxidase. All these drugs are monoamines. The way they leave your body and go through your urine and disappear and become harmless is by being oxidized. But if you take... So monoamine oxidase is the enzyme which oxidizes monoamines. Well, if you take a monoamine oxidase inhibitor the amines don't disappear. If you load your system with monoamine oxidase inhibitors and then smoke DMT, what would have been a five-minute trip could turn into an hour and a half because your body is unable to uh, chemically dealkylate, deanimate, decarboxylate the compound and get it out of the site of activity. So... People use this as a strategy for enhancing drug trips. There is something you can get at Iranian markets called hurmal. You ask for hurmal and they will sell you uh, a, a little paper bag full of what look like small black seeds. They are small black seeds. They're the seeds of the Pergamon harmala plant and they contain a... a, a a stiff amount of harmaline, a powerful monoamine oxidase inhibitor. If you take two grams of this hermol 
and grind it in a mortar and pestle or turn it, flour it in an osterizer, uh, you can take half as much mushrooms with that. Uh, you can take half a dose of ayahuasca with that and it will be a very strong full dose. Uh, so this is a strategy for strengthening uh, drugs. What I do, and it's just my preference, but uh, it, it works at a level that I think is pharmacological, not psychological, is I smoke cannabis. I mean, I would not, if I didn't have cannabis, I wouldn't take a psychedelic drug. It's indispensable. Why? Well, because it's, it's a navigational aid. If you get into a place you don't like on a, on a big hallucinogen, you can move out of that place by smoking or by chanting, singing, but smoking is the most effective. Actually, chanting will move you out of a place you don't like, but smoking will move you into a place you do like if the thing is not cooperating. In other words, if you've taken five grams of mushrooms and it's the hour and 20 minute mark and nothing is going on, you should smoke a bomber. It will then just, it will just rupture through then. There's some kind of resistance there and it's nothing to get all excited about. Just smoke a bomber and, and then it will happen. Um, yeah. If, going back to your previous remark about some people are affected by pot one way, some people another way. I mean, if yeah, you, you have to know. You have to know your tools. You know, you have to... You, it, I, like, I wouldn't suggest that the first time you smoke pot, it be when you're circulating five dried grams of, of, of mushrooms. You should know pot inside and out before you ever take it into that kind of a situation. that interaction of these various things with alcohol. Oh, alcohol is, it's, all, it's just in another world. It's irrelevant. Uh, you mean how does alcohol affect psilocybin? I don't know that anybody has ever had the courage to admit that they did the two together. Well, I know a lot of people who put, the, put mushrooms in wine. Do they? Drink it, drink the whole mess. Yeah. What an odd thing. I know people who put it in tea hot water, but I've never heard of that. I took, uh, actually, now that I think about it, I took uh, Amanita muscaria once, and I, or one of the times I took it, I was told to take hot sherry and pour it over the mushroom. And, and, but I think it was just, you know, the, the sort of in the siècle fantasies of the person who was getting me to do this. Certainly, though, the alcohol will release the psilocybin, but the psilocybin is all there. And the way I take mushrooms is I just eat them. I don't take them with anything. They, I, I like the taste, and I want them to be as dry as crackers, as the crispest saltine cracker you've ever had. If you have mushrooms in the back of your refrigerator, and you get them out to take, and they're rubbery, bendable, then you're probably better off to just get rid of them. They probably have gone off. You want that mushroom to be dry, you know, as dry as a good saltine cracker, crumbly dry, 
And then that means it, it's okay and has been properly stored. But I just eat them. And I do have a close to the top of the five grams, I do, my stomach does turn. My, my body or some part of me is saying, oh no, not this again, you know. But, uh, but I can get them down. Yeah. What, what is the shelf life for dried mushrooms? It depends on how carefully they've been stored. If you've, if you've stored them, very, if they were very dry when they went into their container, and the container is absolutely airtight, and you store them in a freezer in darkness, they'll last virtually forever. But light degrades psilocybin, and moisture degrades psilocybin, and so you you want to keep all that away from it. One other question, and I, I asked this the last time I attended one of your seminars, and the anecdotal... Uh, Oh, insights or experiences of people who are on the uh, serotonin reuptake inhibitors uh, and uh, taking uh, psilocybin and a variety of psychedelics. What was said last time? Uh, no substantial effect. And I wondered about that. It just seemed to me there should be a prolongation. Yeah, I've talked... It seems to me there should be as well, but there apparently people aren't reporting any dramatic effect. We're talking here about what happens if you take mushrooms and you're taking Prozac, for example. Um, no dramatic effect, though you would expect there to be, because Prozac is targeting the serotonin system, the serotonergic system, which is exactly the system that these hallucinogens are all working at. Uh, psilocybin competes with serotonin, for the bond site and has a greater affinity for the bond site than, than serotonin itself does. Um, and yet uh, Prozac doesn't seem to interrupt the effect. And the other ones, I don't know about what the other, the new Zoloft. Zoloft. Yeah. That affects both the serotonin and norepinephrine. Yeah, I don't recall its name. But, uh. Those are interesting drugs because they are uh, the first effort by pharmacology to attack serious depression through the serotonin through the serotonin system, which always seemed to me the place to look at. Uh, they're fascinating. The the effect. What what interests me about Prozac is that it stops working. That's really interesting. Because imagine if we could design drugs that you take them ten times and then they stop working. And then there's no reason to take them anymore. Um, that's really interesting. Uh, the other thing is, uh, you know... Prozac uh, has a very, a very strong effect, and yet when you stop taking Prozac, it's very much like taking it. And both are great. That's the weird thing. 
My understanding about Prozac is that it has a lot of active metabolites and an extremely long half-life, like two, three weeks before right. it really fully leaves your system. Right. And in reference to the monoamine oxidase inhibitors, the two of them together can put you into a, a serious crisis with blood pressure you know, skyrocketing. The Prozac and the monoamine oxidase yeah. inhibitors. Yeah, that combination. And both of them are antidepressants, so they warn the physicians. Not to mix big, them. bold letters that if your patient is on a monoamine oxidase inhibitor, don't put them on Prozac and vice versa. Well, that would indicate then that ayahuasca is not a good idea for a person on Prozac, but maybe LSD and psilocybin are not uh, not uh, so so affected by that. I always imagined, being a fan of plants and shamanism and so forth, that eventually a drug, that eventually we would have a society where people would have psychedelic experiences and it would straighten them out. Prozac leads me to wonder if it might not be possible to design drugs where there is never a dramatic episode as there is with LSD or psilocybin, you know, the, the eight-hour, oh my God, get your life together thing, but that you could just very slowly bring people to a different place. It's very clear to me that what Prozac does is it teaches you something about social interaction and that what it teaches you is pretty trivial and that you can fake Prozac once you know what it does. And it's not a bad idea. I mean, we should all pretend we're on Prozac. Life would be much better. And, and you don't need Prozac to, to, to do that. All it does is it sets you slightly forward into social space. And you're less, um, you're less self-reflective and more communicative. And after taking Prozac for three months, you know how to do this. Even after the Prozac leaves your system, you just keep behaving that way. So in a sense, Prozac is a behavior modification drug, and it doesn't have to be taken very long before the behavior is in fact permanently modified, I think. I mean, people have lots of opinions about it, but that's what I've observed. Yeah. What do mushroom ceremonies <clears throat> constitute? In Mexico, which is the only place in the world where there is a living mushroom shamanism, like not even in the Amazon, there are there is living plant-based shamanism, but not mushroom shamanism. So in the mountains of the Sierra Mazateca behind Oaxaca, are the Tzeltal, Tzotzil, and a couple of others, uh, tribes of Indians. They've been there for a long, long time, and they, the mushroom-taking ceremony is what's called a velada, which is a rare word in Spanish. It basically is translated as an all-night singing session, a velada. And... Uh, it, usually the purpose is to cure. And people gather an hour or so after sundown in a hut. The shaman or shamaness, certainly the most famous mushroom shaman of all, is the shamaness uh, Maria Sabina, 
who died a few years ago, who was the person who who turned Gordon Wasson on. And everyone, not everyone takes the mushroom, but everyone who wants to takes the mushroom. And uh, the candles are extinguished. People sit in darkness. People people chant. There aren't musical instruments, particularly, not drums or stringed instruments, just chanting. And then the shaman goes into trance and speaks. And if any of you know Maria Sabina's mushroom falada that that Gordon Wasson published, um, she speaks in a kind of sing-song poetry, you know, Woman of affairs am I, medicine woman am I, little bird am I, I in the forest am I. And this and this goes on, and then tobacco smoke is blown over the patient, and copal is burned, and, and that's about it. In the mushroom velada that Wasson recorded, Maria Savina basically gives up on the patient. She says, it's an 11-year-old boy, and she says during the session that he's not going to live, and he doesn't. He died within three weeks of that session. Uh, But there isn't elaborate ceremony, and there isn't at this stage elaborate mythology. The Maya we assume used mushrooms, but only because the mushrooms were there. We don't have good evidence that they used mushrooms. We have these things called mushroom stones, which are mushroom-shaped stones about this high with a face on them sometimes. And they're found in the highland of Guatemala and across the Petan. But they're not really associated with city sites. They're just found, sort of, occasionally people find one. Nobody knows what that's about. No Mayan book that is uh, post-conquest, or no Mayan book is post-conquest. In the Codex Vindabonensis Mexicanus I, which is a Mixtec codex, there is a depiction of people doing something with mushrooms. But the Mixtec codices have never been deciphered, so we don't know exactly what's going on there. I think they did use mushrooms. I, I just can't imagine that people building a civilization in the rainforest like that wouldn't have utilized that resource. And certainly their art is hallucinogenic. I mean, if you know Mayan vases or friezes, um, it's it's on a par with Tibetan tantric Buddhism for a crazy set of images. Uh, um, but uh, the more we find out about the Maya, the less interested I am in claiming them as mushroom takers because uh, Mayan civilization begins to look like one of the tweakiest social organizations ever to come down the pike. I mean, these people, it was an incredible steep, incredibly steep social pyramid. 
uh, thousands of people were laboring to build these ceremonial cities, these buildings, which then 12 guys could walk around on top of and look down at everybody. The, the public genital bloodlettings that were required of the royalty don't sound like much fun. And uh, the obsession with warfare, not only warfare, but with the capture and torment of hostages doesn't seem particularly appealing. Uh, as decipherment proceeds, the Maya, who we used to think of as these enlightened, stargazing uh, people living in balance with their ecology, that's pretty much over the brink now. I mean, even the, even the noble skeletons of the classic climax show nutritional deficit. There was something was going wrong. And I think that the real message of the Maya may be not that they are spiritually to be emulated, but that they are in fact a cautionary example of what can happen to a civilization. I think they wrecked their environment. That they, I mean, it, it's incredible. Palenque, at the classic climax, had 220,000 people. Tikal, they believe, had 1.2 million people. It may have been the largest city in the world, A.D. 870. Well, good grief. Uh, they were cutting the forests for charcoal. They, they had a, this steep social pyramid, uh, very elaborate ceremonies and religious obligations being acted out by a tiny educated elite who could read this stuff. And, uh, and finally it flew to pieces. And we know a lot now about how it flew to pieces. We know that it took about 120 years, and we know that it radiated out from certain points. It radiated from Copan. Copan fell, because what, what would happen is when these cities were abandoned, they would, sort of the act of turning out the light as you leave, they would push over the dated stilla face down in the ground where these things weighed tons. They stayed face down until Sylvanus Morley and uh, Eric J. Thompson and all those good folk came and with cranes and hoists set them back on their bases. Then they could read the dates. So you can see that at Copan, around 790, it begins. Then goes Kiragua. Then goes, um, you know, the, Be the lowland Belize sites. Then... Uh, uh, Washaktun, Tikal, Mirador, then, uh, and, and finally it reaches at the end Tonina, at the, at the uppermost. The last long count date ever found was carved at Tonina. And uh, strangely enough, this is the place where the revolt in Chiapas broke out last January. I mean, Okosingo, this town made famous by the atrocities, is the town you go to if you want to hike up in the hills behind it and see Tanina. So uh, I think it was a peasant revolt. It's not very dramatic. It doesn't rank with 
fleeing to the galactic center. But on the other hand, the uh, glyphic evidence seems to support that people just got sick of all this uh, uh, pretense and religious display and so forth and so on. And the intelligentsia were killed and the people went back into the forests. You know, people ask, where did the Maya go? They didn't go anywhere. Fifteen million people speak a dialect of Maya as their first language. It's the largest aboriginal language group in the Americas. They didn't go anywhere. They're there. They're selling you Coca-Cola along the roads. Yeah. I... You, had, you introduced a dimension, I don't know if you call it a dimension, but it is to me, in, in the beginning of your class, you said that uh, there, in about 30 years, mankind, it could be like a holocaust or a horror. Oh, where I said the earth will be empty in 50 years, that right. rap? But here's the question. <laughs> <laughs> that rap? <laughs> 30 years, with this kind of knowledge? or how, yeah. I, um, Well, I... Do you handle something like that? First of all, I'm not a pessimist. I think a great change is coming. Holocaust has a fairly ominous uh, tone about it these days. Even apocalypse has been somewhat sullied. That's why I've slipped deeper into Greek and called it an apocatastasis, (laughs) since that has no press at all. Nobody has strong feelings about apocatastasis. Uh, but what's happening, what's going to happen is without precedent. It, it's so enormous that to call it good or bad is pointless. All you can, you know, what is it that Stephen Vincent Benet says at the end of John Brown's body? He says, some will worship and some adore, some will flee in horror. It is for you simply to say, it is here. It is here. And and that's what we're talking about. I mean, I really think, and I don't know if I've conveyed it, because I there is in my personality a desire to be liked. And it takes the form of slightly softening and evading the real implications of my position. Because everybody is writing books about how there's going to be great change in the world. I mean, you don't have to be a rocket scientist to see that there's going to be great change in the world. But what I'm saying is something much stranger than that. I'm saying that... At the winter solstice of 2012 AD, at 18 minutes after 11 a.m. Greenwich Mean Time, uh, the state of physics in this part of the universe will undergo a dynamical collapse of some sort. Not the environment, not human society, the laws of physics will undergo a collapse and the rest of the history of the universe will happen in about 20 minutes it is as if you can imagine that we were that we might be on a collision course with an asteroid 
you might be able to imagine that we're on a collision course with a black hole. But what I'm suggesting is that we're on a collision course with something that we cannot model or imagine at this point. And it's possible to call it, uh, you know, Christ triumphant, if that's what you want to call it. Or it's possible to call it um, the end of the world. Or it's possible to call it the dawn of hyperspace. Call it what you like. It isn't simply the collapse of civilization. It isn't simply uh, the end of life as we know it. It's the end of everything as we know it. And uh, tonight, if we get the computer, I will argue toward this and attempt to convince you that this incredibly bizarre-sounding position is the only reasonable position an intelligent person should take. That we are not thinking enough about the implications of what we see around us. If I say to you, time is speeding up, Everybody nods, yes, time is speeding up. We have books about that. We know about this. But if I say to you, I'm not kidding, then you say, well, you mean metaphorically. You mean that things are busier. No, I mean that time is speeding up. And time has always been speeding up. Time is a phenomenon which does not move at a constant rate. It moves Faster and faster and faster and faster and faster. And so when you get an ape with enough intelligence to lift a stone and bring it down on another stone to shatter it to get a cutting edge, at that point, you're 200,000 years from concrescence, this moment that I'm talking about, 200,000 years. When you can get to the place where a bunch of Greek guys can sit around and talk about what is beauty, you're 2,500 years from the concrescence. When you can get to the place where uh, somebody can point out that space is curved in the vicinity of massive stars, then you're uh, 110 years from concrescence. And when you light the atomic bomb over the city of your enemy, you're 67 years from concrescence. And we are now 18 years from concrescence. And uh, the, the, the proof of it is history itself. History is what happens to biology when the singularity intrudes into the system. Think of biology as a bunch of random particles doing their thing, reproducing, preying upon each other, evolving, dying, migrating, and then from underneath the surface on which all this is happening, you move a very large magnet and these particles are revealed to be magnetic particles. And what they do is they begin to arrange themselves in the beautiful fan-like pattern of the magnetic field. The particles don't know why they're doing this. 
to them it's not greatly different from the random game they were playing before. Well, this this arranging of the pattern in a higher state of order is what we call history. And history is in fact headed somewhere. It's, it can't go on for thousands more years. It can't even go on for decades more. History is a process like the birth of a child. When the child is finished in the womb, when gestation is completed, a whole set of new programs come in and the womb begins to knead and push the fetus into the birth canal where then another set of muscles grab hold and squeeze and squeeze and expel the, the child into the world. We have been, since the fall of Rome at least, in this birth canal. And since the advent of atomic weapons, television, uh, so forth, international airliners and so forth, we have been at the crisis of this birth transition. And now uh, it's upon us. There are people living today, millions of people, who will be alive at that moment. And uh, it's confounding to us because we are not religious people. I don't believe. I mean, however much we may sage ourselves and visit with rishis and that sort of thing, we we don't even know what it means to be really religious. We are victims or the practitioners of scientism. And scientism teaches that history goes on forever and the grave is where you turn into compost. But what if these things, what if these two statements are wrong? After all, science hasn't proved that you turn into nothing but compost, and science hasn't proved that history goes on forever. These are just statements that arise out of the scientific attitude toward the world. But what if it's wrong? What if something does survive death? And what if history is a process leading toward some kind of tremendously unexpected conclusion? It seems to me the signs are all around us, except that from the scientific point of view, the only conclusion you can reach is a pessimistic one. You say, the earth is dying. We are, there are too many of us. Technology is out of control. Pollution is out of control. Politics, out of control. Everything, out of control, out of control. Well, but what does the fetus think? as it starts into the birth canal. Out of control! You know, every light on the dashboard turns red. No oxygen, no space, nowhere to go. Strangulation. And yet, hang on, hang on. One more push. One more push. Push! And then, you know, everything is redefined. Everything is totally redefined. You're now in a space thousands of times larger than the womb ever was, under the care of midwives, doctors, mother, father. Uh, A whole new world of possibilities opens up. And yet, a moment ago, 
you were being crushed like a bug by some enormous muscle that was just squeezing the life out of you. And so I don't, I don't fault history. History is not an aberration. History is the transition from those fun-loving, pastoral, agricultural, psychedelic, aboriginal, nomadic people from that to something else, which involves the necessary grotesqueness of the last 2,000 years of human history. Weird religions, toxic technologies, uh, bunko political theories, all of that was a, a response of a panicked and maddened creature. We have, we, the, the Bible got one thing right, at least, that we fell into history, that this is a fall, that this is not the full unfolding of the human condition. This is not what our Father intended for us, is what I'm trying to say. And uh, I am not different from uh, Teilhard de Chardin or probably the guys on Sunday morning TV, except that I'm willing to, to make a scientific argument for it and I'm willing to, to make a date. I'm willing to be so crazy and reckless and to let my own reputation hang so far out there that I'm willing to take a stand and say, based on my calculations, based on my measurement of the rate of collapse, we're not talking about 500 years or 100 years or 50 years. We're talking about well under 7,000 days at this point. And I can feel it. All this stuff about the net, all these epidemic uh, diseases, all this political upheaval and collapse, all this uncertainty on the part of the managers of the planet, it indicates that we're, this is the final act. We're going to find out who killed Miss Plum this act. You're listening to The Psychedelic Salon, where people are changing their lives one thought at a time. And this, I think, is the main problem with Terence's work. Ironically, it was also his bravest intellectual act, actually picking a date for his ultimate prediction. I can uh, see a lot of reasons that he may have decided to be so specific about 2012, and looking back at my own life at a similar age, I can see how, well, how easy it is for one's youthful naivety to uh, cloud one's judgment. I'm sure that I'm not the only one who wishes Terence had been more vague about his end date. But if you discard the 2012 issue and consider the rest of Terence's work outside of that issue, I think that you're going to find many of his ideas remain spot on yet today. Actually, uh, I guess the first thing that I should be saying right now goes back to an early part of this talk, and that is uh, if you're thinking about using psychedelics and are also using Prozac or some other SSRI, please be sure to go to arrowid.org, that's E-R-O-W-I-D, arrowid.org, and do your research. A lot of uh, new information has come out since this talk was recorded, and, well, you owe it to yourself to be very careful when combining prescription medicines and psychedelics. I say this because I've seen some really close calls with people who didn't take that advice. You've got to be extremely careful when combining any drugs, but particularly prescription medicines and psychedelics. So, uh, what did you think about Terence's take on the Maya? 
I can't remember hearing him go on at uh, such length about his disregard for their culture. Taking a clue from uh, his thought that perhaps the Mayan civilization collapsed because of a peasant revolt, well, if we had heard this before 2012, maybe we could have uh, turned the 2012 event into what actually took place in 2011, the worldwide peasant revolt that we call the Occupy Movement. Check back for the original end date of Terence's time wave, and, uh, <laughs> well, you're going to find that he originally set that date in November of 2011, which uh, coincides nicely with uh, Occupy Wall Street, a true peasant revolt if there ever was one. You know, I'm, I'm just saying, but uh, <laughs> I'll leave the further speculations to you. Now, keeping in mind the fact that the talk we just listened to was recorded in June of 1994, when information about psychedelic substances was still quite difficult to find, Terence's uh, description of the differences between NNDMT and 5-MeO-DMT were perhaps the beginning of the time when these two forms of DMT came to be known as the power and glory. And again, this isn't meant to be taken in the form of criticism of Terence. It's just another way to point out how differently we all describe these experiences. So when Terence said that 5-MeO was just like NNDMT, but that nothing happens, <laughs> well, I cracked up, as I suspect you did as well, uh, assuming that you've experienced both of these substances. The only way that I could say they were alike is that they both shot me into a deep psychedelic state. But to say that nothing happened on 5-MeO, <laughs> well, I'm almost at a loss for words. Uh, let me just say that, at least to me, something happened. <laughs> and I guess my reason for pointing this out is that far too often I hear people talk about what I would consider to be a really wonderful and fruitful experience on NNDMT. But they're disappointed because they didn't see any machine elves or self-dribbling basketballs or any of that stuff. You see, these experiences are unique to each of us, and for me that means that I really don't pay much attention to descriptions of other people's trips. They're uh, sort of like dreams, you know. You really have to be there to appreciate what seems to happen. Another thing that took place well after this talk was given is that an analog in nature for MDMA was discovered. And at one of the Palenque conferences, Sasha Shulgin went into great detail about this plant. And <laughs> within a month after the conference, there wasn't a single one of what before then was a common plant left in any California greenhouses. It was, uh, it was really fascinating to watch. And no, I'm not going to reveal what Sasha said about natural MDMA, but I'm sure that with a deep enough search, you'll be able to figure it out. Now, at one point in this talk, when uh, Terrence was speaking about wishing an experience would end, I realized that this may be something I haven't mentioned to you before. And that is the fact that if you get serious about learning how to navigate through in theospace, then you're probably going to need to accept the fact that there are going to be more times than you want to recall where a trip took a turn for the worst, and uh, all you could think about was how much longer it was going to last. So get ready for that to happen if being a psychonaut appeals to you. Believe it or not, even an exceptionally good trip can sometimes seem to last too long. Now, about an hour into this talk, when he was speaking about a potential 2012 event, Terrence said... What's going to happen is without precedent. It is so enormous that to call it good or bad is pointless. And recall now that that was back in 1994, almost two decades before the uh, so-called mysterious 2012 event, which is uh, virtually what all of us focused on, 
some believing it would be an unprecedented event and others saying that nothing would happen. But what if something did happen that was and still is truly unprecedented and so enormous that to call it good or bad is pointless? Well, I think that something on that scale did and is happening. And that, like fish swimming through water without noticing the ocean, we're swimming through an electronic ocean of information that over one half of all people alive today can instantly tap into for whatever their needs. In June of 1994, the World Wide Web was about two years old with only a handful of sites to visit. There was no MP3, no Skype, no web-enabled phones, no texting, and no video cameras in the hands of billions. And by the way, these cameras are also connected to a global infrastructure that can be accessed by us common people. So let me ask you, what more do you need to see to understand that we have truly entered into unprecedented territories? Is it good? Is it bad? Well, that doesn't really matter. It is what it is, and now the question is, what are we going to do with this enormous human interconnectivity? Something that has never in the history of our species even come close to existing before. This is really big news, my friend. Big news and good news at that. Our species has, perhaps, now actually entered the birth canal. And for now, this is Lorenzo signing off from Cyberdelic Space. Be careful out there, my friends. <laughs>